0: Hey, it's Brian, back with another Burr Months bonus episode for those of us who are getting an early start on the 2020 Christmas season. To kick off the Burr Month this year, I'm bringing you a serialized reading of the 1918 YA novel, Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. I'll bring you anywhere between one and three chapters per episode, and episodes will arrive every few days for the next little while. And, after that, well, I haven't decided yet, but it'll be equally festive. This is installment number two, and because it's a novel, you really do need to listen from the beginning, so make sure to start there if you haven't yet. But before we get to that, I just want to remind you that it's never too early to send a Christmas memory to appear on the show this season. Even if you've already shared one in the past, I'd encourage you to consider sending another. This year, more than any other year, we need some extra Christmas spirit. So record a voice memo on your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And one last thing before we jump in. Would you like to receive an early Christmas card? All you have to do is review the show on Apple Podcasts and then get in touch with me. Those reviews help me a lot, so I'll be glad to say thanks by sending you an official Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card. Again, you can reach out at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com for details. Okay, now on to the second installment of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 2. The Boy Scouts Invasion that was a grand surprise that the boy scouts of the spring lake academy put over on the campfire girls of hiawatha institute they had been planning it for several weeks or since they first received information of the grand council fire as a closing event of the first semester of the girls school the two institutions were located in municipalities only 15 miles apart connected by both steam railroad and electric interurban lines spring lake academy located on a lake of the same name at the southern outskirt of Kingston, was originally a boys' military school and it still retained that primal distinction. But the success of Hiawatha Institute, as a campfire girls' school, set the imaginative minds of some of the leaders of the boys at Spring Lake to work along similar lines, with the result that the faculty's cooperation was petitioned for the organization of the student body into a troop of boy scout patrols. The scheme was successful, And, as it served to inject new life into the academy, the business end of the institution had no ground for complaint. This innovation at Spring Lake was due largely to the activities of Clifford Long, one of the students. He was a cousin to Marion Stanlock, and naturally this relationship served to direct his personal interest toward Hiawatha Institute. Not a few other students in these two schools were similarly related, some of them being brothers and sisters. And so it is not to be wondered at if these two places of learning became, as it were, twin schools with much interest in common and many of their activities inter-associated. They had rival debating teams between which they held more or less periodic contests, and in the numerous social events there were frequently exchanges of invitational courtesies. The boys plotted their big surprise on the girls in true scout fashion. There was no real secret in the fact that the campfire girls of Hiawatha Institute were planning a big event, but girl-like they affected secrecy to stimulate interest. The result was more than could have been expected, although the girls did not realize this until after it was all over. The curiosity of the Spring Lake boys was thoroughly alive as soon as they learned of a mysterious something big going on at the Institute. True to the character of real scouts, they delegated emissaries, commonly denominated spies, to visit the stronghold of the campfire girls to get all the details of their plans discoverable and report back to headquarters. Greater success than that which rewarded their efforts could hardly have been wished for. Half a dozen boys went and returned and then put their heads and their reports together with the result that the scouts of the school had all the information they needed. They mapped out their plans and scheduled their prospective movements by the calendar and the clock. They chartered an interurban train for the run to and from the Institute. The arrival on the scene of the Grand Council fire was, as we have seen, a complete surprise to the girls. The scouts well knew that their presence would not be regarded as an intrusion, for a Grand Council fire, according to the handbook, is for friends and the public. The interruption of the program by the marching of the Boy Scouts within the circle of the campfire girls was permitted to continue for 10 or 15 minutes, while a number of short speeches were made by some of the boy leaders, in which they gloried over the way they had put one over on the girls. We are not through yet, announced Harry Gilbert prophetically. Some of us are going to put over another surprise just about as thrilling as this, and we want to challenge you to find out what it is. Of course, this statement produced the very result the boys desired. Naturally, they wished the girls to think that they were pretty bright fellows. They got just what they were looking for as a result of their surprise, namely, volumes of praise. To be sure, this did not come in the form of undisguised admiration. That isn't the way a clever girl signifies her approval of this sort of thing. It just burst into evidence through such mocking jeers as, You boys think you're so smart, or... It's a wonder you wouldn't have gone to enough pains to build a railroad or sink a submarine. To which, on one occasion in the course of the evening, Earl Hamilton replied, Thank you, ladies. We always do things thorough. Lee! screamed Catherine Crane. Yes, it really was a scream, an explosion, too, if the indelicacy may be excused. But the opportunity for a comeback struck her so keenly, so swiftly, that she just could not contain her eagerness to beat someone else to it. Well, the laugh that followed also was the nature of an explosion, and it was on poor Catherine quite as much as on Earl, who had tripped up on an adjective in place of an adverb. The girl's eagerness was so evident that it struck everyone as funnier than the boy's mistake in grammar. Anyway, she recovered quite smartly and followed up her attack with the pert addendum as the laughter subsided. You evidently did not do your lessons thoroughly. The emphasis on the lee was so pronounced, almost spasmodic, as to bring forth another laughing applause. This exchange of repartee took place in a large school auditorium to which all repaired as soon as the outdoor exercises had been finished. The program of the evening was punctuated by interruptions of this kind every now and then. Of course, the fun-makers waited for suitable opportunities to spring their quips and cranks so that no merited interest in the doing could be lost, and none of it was lost. The presence of the bold invaders seemed to add zest to the most routine of the campfire performances, and when all was over, everybody was agreed that there had been not a dull moment during the whole evening. At the close of the Campfire Girls program, the 150 Boy Scouts arose and with heroic unison of voices peculiar to much practice in the delivery of school yells, they chanted a clever parody of Woe Low Lo Cheer, a Boy Scout's compliment to the Campfire Girls, and then marched out of the auditorium and away toward the interurban line where the chartered train was waiting for them, and all the while they continued to chant with variations of the words the rhythmic drive of their voices pulsing back to the institute but becoming fainter and more faint until at last the sound was lost with the speeding away of the trolley train in the distance. Chapter 3. The Skull and Crossbones If Marion Stanlock, high peak in the trait and a torchbearer, had read one of two letters signed with a skull and crossbones, which she found lying on the desk in her room after the adjournment of the Grand Council fire, doubtless there would have been an interruption and probably a change in the holiday program of the Flamingo campfire. She saw the letters lying there and under ordinary circumstances would have torn them open and read them, however hastily, before retiring. But on this occasion she was rather tired owing to the activities and the excitement of the day and evening. Moreover, She realized that she could not hope for anything but a wearisome journey to Holly Hill on the following day unless she refreshed herself with as many hours of sleep as possible before train time. So she merely glanced at the superscriptions on the envelopes to see if the letters were from any of her relatives or friends, and failing to recognize either of them, she put them into her handbag, intending to read them at the first opportunity next morning. Then she went to bed and fell asleep almost instantly. Marion was awakened in the morning by her roommate, Helen Nash, who had quietly arisen half an hour earlier. The latter was almost ready for breakfast when she awoke her friend from a sleep that promised to continue several hours longer, unless interrupted. She had turned on the electric light and was standing before the glass, combing her hair. Marion glanced at the clock to see what time it was, but the face was turned away from her, and the light in the room made it impossible for her to observe through the window shades that day was just breaking. "'What time is it, Helen?' she asked. "'Did the alarm go off? I didn't hear it. What waked you up?' Helen did not answer at once. For a moment or two, her manner seemed to indicate that she did not hear the question of the girl in bed." Then, as if suddenly rescuing her mind from thoughts that appealed to have carried her away into some distant abstraction, she replied thus, in a series of disconnected utterances. "'No, the alarm didn't go off. A Marion, I got up at six o'clock. I turned the alarm off. It is now six-thirty. I don't know what woke me, I just woke up.' Marion arose, wondering at the peculiar manner of her roommate and the strained, almost convulsive tone of her voice. She asked no further questions, but proceeded with her dressing and preparation for breakfast. For the time being, she forgot all about the two letters in her handbag that lay on her dresser. In some respects, Helen was a peculiar girl. If her speech and action had been characterized with more vim, vigor, and imagination, doubtless she would generally have been known as a pretty girl. As it was, her features were regular, her complexion fair, her eyes blue, and her hair a light brown. Marion thought her pretty, but Marion had associated with her intimately for two or three years and had discovered qualities in her that mere acquaintances could never have discovered. She had found Helen apparently to be possessed of a strong, direct conception of integrity, never vacillating in manner or sympathies. Moreover, she exhibited a quiet, unwavering capability in her work that always commanded the respect and occasionally the admiration of both classmates and teachers. Not only was Helen quiet of disposition but strangely secretive on certain subjects. For instance, she never said anything about her home or relatives. She lived in Villa Park, a small town midway between Westmoreland and Hollyhill. Her father was dead and, when not at school, she lived with her mother. These two, so far as Marion knew, constituting her entire family. Marion had visited her home and there found the mother and daughter apparently in moderate circumstances. Naturally, she had wondered a little that Mrs. Nash could be able to support her daughter at a private school, even though that institution made a specialty of teaching rich men's daughters how to be useful and economical, but the reason why had never been explained to her. Helen got her remittances from home regularly and seemed to have no particular cause to worry about finances. She had spent parts of two vacations at the Stanlock home, and there conducted herself as if quite naturally able to fit in with luxurious surroundings and large accommodations. Only a few days before the Christmas holidays, something had occurred that emphasized Helen's secretive peculiarity to such an extent that Marion was considerably provoked and just a little mystified. A young man, somewhere about 25 or 27 years old, Fairly well but not expensively dressed and bearing the appearance of one who had seen a good deal of the rough side of life, called at the institute and asked for Miss Nash. He was ushered into the reception room and Helen was summoned. One of the girls who witnessed the meeting told some of her friends that Miss Nash was evidently much surprised, if not unpleasantly disturbed, when she recognized her caller. Immediately she put on a coat and hat and she and the young man went out. An hour later she returned, alone, and to no one did she utter a word relative to the stranger's visit, not even to her roommate, who had passed them in the hall as they were going out. Helen Nash was a member of the Flamingo Campfire and accompanied the other members on their vacation trip to the Mountain Mining District. The other eleven who boarded the train with Marion, the holiday hostess, were Ruth Hazelton, Ethel Zimmerman, Ernestine Johanson, Hazel Edwards, Azalea Atwood, Harriet Newcomb, Estelle Adler, Julietta Hyde, Marie Chrismore, Catherine Crane, and Violet Munday. Miss Ladd, the guardian, also was one of Marion's invited guests. The party took possession of one end of the parlor car, which fortunately was almost empty before they boarded. They began a chatter of girl voices, happy, spirited, witty, and promising to continue thus to the end of the journey or until their kaleidoscopic subjects of conversation were exhausted. Every thrilling detail of the evening before was gone over, examined, given its proper degree of credit, and filed away in their memories for future reference. There was more catching of breath, more cheering, more clapping of hands, but no more mock jeers now that the boys were absent as the events of the Boy Scouts' invasion and the many incidental and brilliant results were recalled and repictured. I wonder what Harry Gilbert meant when he said some of them were planning another surprise nearly as thrilling as the one they sprung last night, said Azalea Atwood, with characteristic excitable expectation. He addressed himself to you, Marion, when he said it, and he's a close friend of your cousin Clifford Long. Whatever it is, I bet anything it will fall heaviest on this campfire when it comes. Maybe it was just talk to get us worked up and looking for something never to come, suggested Ethel Zimmerman. It would be a pretty good one for the boys to get us all excited and looking for something clear up to April 1st and then spring an April Fool joke, something like a big dry goods box packed with Excelsior. Oh, but that wouldn't measure up to expectations, Ruth Hazelton declared. It wouldn't be one, two, three with what they did last night, and they promised something just as interesting. You don't get me, returned Ethel. The dry goods box filled with excelsior would be the anti-climax of wondering expectations. You're too deep for a 20th century bunch of girls, Ethel, Hazel Edwards objected. That might easily be mistaken for the promised big stunt. They might compose a lot of ditties and mix them up with the packing, something like this. "'Believe not all big things that boys may tell thee, "'for great expectations may produce excelsior.'" "'Very clever, indeed. "'Only it sounds like an impossible combination of Alice in Wonderland "'and an old maid,' said Harriet Newcomb, with a toss of her head. "'I'm surprised at you, Ethel, for suggesting such a thing. "'If the boys should put over anything like that, "'we'd break off diplomatic relations right away. "'If they wanted to call us a lot of rummies, they couldn't do it as effectively by the use of direct language. Cleverness usually makes a hit with its victims unless it contains an element of contempt. That really is a brilliant observation, announced the Guardian who had been listening with quiet interest to the spirited conversation. Continued thought along such lines ought to result in a national honor for you, Harriet. "'I'll agree to all that if Harriet will take back what she said about my being an old maid,' said Hazel, with mock dignity. "'I didn't call you an old maid, my dear,' denied the impromptu poet pertly. "'I merely said, or meant to say, that the idea you expressed might better be expected from an old maid, although I doubt if many old maids could have expressed it as well as you did.' "'Girls, girls, are you going to turn our vacation into a two-weeks repartee, B. Marion broke in with affected desperation." If you do, you will force your hostess to go way back and sit down, and that wouldn't be very polite, you know. By the way, if you'll excuse me, I'll do that very thing now, but for another reason. I've got two letters in my bag that I forgot all about. I'm going to go read them right now. You girls are making too much chatter. I can't read in your midst. So saying, Marion retired to a chair just far enough away to lend semblance of reality to her go-way-back-and-sit-down suggestion and settled back comfortably to read the two missives that arrived with the last evening's mail at the Institute. Settled back comfortably, yes, but only for a short time. Marion never before in her life received two such letters. Both were anonymous. The first that she opened aroused enough curiosity to unsettle her. She thought she knew whom it was from, those ingenious Boy Scouts of Spring Lake, Perhaps it was written by Cousin Clifford himself, it was just like him. He was a natural leader among boys, and often up to mischief of some sort. Marion was sure he was one of the prime movers of the scout invasion of Hiawatha Institute. But the next letter was the real thriller, or rather, cold chiller. She knew very well what it meant. From the point of view of the writer, it meant business, a threat well-calculated to work terror in her own heart and the heart of every other member of Flamingo Fire. It was a threat couched in direful words, warning her and her friends not to go to Holly Hill on their charity mission, as announced and predicting serious injury, if not death, to some of them. It was signed with a skull and crossbones. Well, nothing like ending on a juicy cliffhanger. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you'll come back again for the next installment. Until then, let me remind you, as always, that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. If you're just discovering Christmas Past this season, welcome to the family. And hey, why don't we all put in the effort to grow that family to spread Christmas cheer far and wide? Telling a friend about the show or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts really do make a big difference, and they don't cost a thing. And if you do leave that review on Apple Podcasts, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com for details. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and now's as good a day as any to join the Christmas Past private Facebook group because we're celebrating all throughout the Burr Months. And visit christmaspass.media for additional Christmas fun like articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. I hope your Burr months are off to a wonderful start, and I'm looking forward to spending them with you together. Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.